It's Thursday, February 27th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Hot Pocket heiress Michelle Janavs was sentenced earlier this week to five months in prison for her role in the college admissions cheating scandal. She spent $300,000 to help her two daughters cheat on exams and secure admission for one of them to USC. While parents are pleading guilty and not guilty, what is happening to the students wrapped up in this scandal? None of them have been charged with crimes, but they also have faced consequences in other ways. Kate Taylor, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for more on how the students have been affected. Next, Democrats have had their 10th debate so far, and the last one before voting begins in South Carolina and on Super Tuesday. And the debate was a mess. With candidates feeling a sense of urgency, they were talking over each other, there were attacks that were personal and also on policy, and the moderators quickly lost control. Bernie Sanders was facing the heat as the frontrunner, but largely came out unscathed. Mike Bloomberg fared better in his second debate, but still has a lot of ground to make up. Maya King, 2020 fellow at Politico, joins us for a breakdown of the latest Dem debate. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It's really hard for me to say this just because I know that it's something that needs to be addressed. It's just unfortunately, which is also why I didn't know exactly when I should come back to YouTube. Um, but the reason for that is just because I'm legally not allowed to speak on anything going on right now. Joining us now is Kate Taylor, reporter at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Kate. My pleasure. We're going to be following up on the college admissions scandal. The latest thing to have happened was the heir to the Hot Pockets fortune was sentenced on Tuesday to five months in prison in order to pay $250,000 in a fine for her role in the college admissions scandal. This was Michelle Genavs. She spent about $300,000 for her two daughters to get help. I think one of them was cheating on the ACT. They secured a proctor to help Jimmy the scores there. And then I think another one was to be a fake recruit for the school's beach volleyball team. So that's kind of the latest. But one of the other big questions around all this was what's happening to the students involved in all this? None of the young people who their parents had been accused of wrongdoing were charged with crimes, but they faced a lot of other consequences. Kate, tell us a little bit about that. In some cases, those who got into college already were kicked out of their colleges or had their admission revoked, which amounts to pretty much the same thing. Some of them had to take suspensions from college. Those who hadn't gotten into college at all at the time their parents were arrested and these charges were brought, in many cases, weren't able to get into college or have ended up at a much less elite college than they were aiming for. And while their parents were using illicit means to try to get them into college, we don't know where they might have gotten in on their own accord if this hadn't all happened. So Michelle Janavs, her older daughter, for instance, she was angling to get her into USC and that didn't happened. She not only was rejected from USC, they told her you can never apply again. So she is now apparently going to community college. So they've really had their lives upended. And of course, a lot of people are going to ask, why should we feel sorry for these kids? They're still very privileged. And that is true. At the same time, I think for any young person to have your life so completely rewritten due to circumstances, in most of their cases, out of their control, most of these kids didn't know what their parents were doing, would be very difficult to cope with. 
and it's clearly going to be something that they're going to be processing for years to come. When this was going down, Mrs. Janav's two daughters were in junior and senior year of high school. So they got banned from things like graduation and prom. And, you know, for a young kid, those things are very important, not to mention people talk, kids talk. Yeah. And to be clear, they were barred from going to school at all. The school made a really interesting decision. And because the school wouldn't talk to me, I don't know why they did this. But they said that the girls had to complete their work from home for the rest of the year. They couldn't come to school at all. They were barred from campus, which is obviously a really extreme measure to take. Ms. Janov's lawyers said that the girls were shunned by friends and teachers. So it sounds like lost their whole social and academic world. And the younger daughter ended up transferring to a local public school. It's a tough position for the schools as well. Obviously, the colleges, you rescind their acceptance letters, all that. But for the high schools, everybody wants to take a tough stand on cheating. So, I mean, everybody's in a tough position when it comes to something like this. What about some of the higher profile students involved? Obviously, Felicity Huffman and her husband, William H. Macy. Only Felicity Huffman was in danger here. She's already pled guilty, went in and out of jail after just a very short time. What happened to their daughter? So her older daughter, whose SAT Felicity Huffman had paid someone to tamper with and get her a higher score, she was really hoping to get into Juilliard. She's an aspiring actress. Apparently, she had proceeded to the final round of auditions for Juilliard two days after her mother was arrested. She flew out to New York to do the final audition. And after she landed, she got an email saying, you're no longer welcome to audition. And her father, William H. Macy, described to the judge in a letter he wrote at the time of his wife's sentencing that their daughter called them from the airport in hysterics saying, please do something, please do something. Apparently, there was nothing they could do, so she hasn't ended up going to college, though she is still pursuing acting and has gotten some roles. Obviously, really emotional when you get a call on something like that. So far, there's been 20 parents, including Miss Huffman, that have pleaded guilty in all of this. There's 15 other parents, including actress Lori Loughlin, who have pled not guilty, and they're going to appear in trial. Lori Loughlin, obviously, one of the most high-profile ones in all of this still yet to go to court and figure out exactly what's happening. That's kind of the big fish that everybody's waiting for. She paid about, between her and her husband, $500,000 for their daughters. How has that been for them and then also for Lori Lachlan's two daughters? So her two daughters were both students at USC when Lori Lachlan and her husband were charged in this case. What we know is that they are no longer students at USC. We don't know if they were expelled or withdrew, what exactly happened. And it's not really clear what her older daughter is doing. Her younger daughter, Olivia Jade, who was a social media celebrity and influencer before all of this, wants to continue that career. She was silent on social media for about eight months, and then she resurfaced on YouTube in December with a very awkward, somewhat painful-to-watch video saying she was back and she really wished she could talk about what had happened, but legally she wasn't allowed to, but she really missed her fans. And it seems to have gotten largely negative reactions on YouTube, right. and she's only posted one other video since then. So it's not clear if her career as an influencer is going to survive this. Time kind of heals all wounds. Who knows how long this will get dragged out? Obviously, we're still waiting for whatever sentencing or punishment Lori Lachlan will 
receipt for all this. And then, you know, things start fading. The news cycle keeps moving on. And hopefully, at least for the kids that really had nothing to do with this, they get to move on. Parents are another deal. They have to pay for what they did and all. But who knows? We'll have to see. And and as I said, Lori Lachlan is the big one that everybody's waiting to hear on. And I think the thing that we may not know anything about for some time, and we may never know, or we might get some clue, is what this has really been like within these families. We've talked about these kids getting kicked out of schools, getting barred from the campus of their high school, being gossiped about. But probably the biggest impact on these kids is the way it's changed their relationship to their parents. For the kids who didn't know anything about what their parents are doing, they had to face the fact that their parents apparently had so little confidence in their children's ability to get into colleges, decent colleges, good enough colleges on their own merits, that they had to go out and lie and cheat. And whether they realized it or not, risk being criminally prosecuted to try to get them into name brand schools. And then for the kids who were a part of this, were aware of what was going on on some level, they have to deal with that. And it's probably really shaken their trust in the adults around them, beginning with their parents, but other adults too. Obviously, there was the corrupt college counselor who was at the center of all of this, who I'm sure these kids were sort of taught to trust as an authority figure who was going to help them navigate this process. And so I think this is something that these kids are probably going to be talking about in therapy for many, many years. Kate Taylor, reporter at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. What I said is what Barack Obama said in terms of Cuba, that Cuba made progress on education. Yes, I think. Really? Really? Yes, because there's no comparison. What Barack Obama said is they made great progress on education and health care. That was Barack Obama. Joining us now is Maya King, 2020 fellow at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Maya. Thanks for having me. So we just had the 10th Democratic debate in South Carolina. It was being billed as one of the most consequential debates of the primary. We're heading into South Carolina, one of the more diverse states, and then right into Super Tuesday right after that. But instead, we got this crazy debate full of people talking over each other. Honestly, I think the moderators really didn't get a handle on the candidates themselves. Bernie Sanders took a lot of heat, but I do want to start there with the moderators and kind of the style of the debate. I think overall it was just a bad one. I mean, yeah, I don't want to, you know, make a a sweeping accusation of the folks at CBS, but it, it wasn't good. You know, it was kind of a mess. I think that's the word that everyone is using, and it lacked a lot of organization. People watch debates to learn something new about the candidates, to find a way to get closer to their decision on who they'd like to vote for. And moderation is a big part of that in that it gives, you know, the candidates an opportunity to actually have some organization and and be able to say something new. But after last night, given the questions and the time and the way that the moderators were just, you know, unable to gain control over the field, I didn't see us really learning anything new. It made the candidates, it forced them to lean on a lot of the things that they already say in their stump speeches. And when they weren't speaking They were yelling over each other and, you know, you're not able to understand anything there. I agree completely. I mean, even the questions, as you mentioned, there was a lot of stuff happening in the news recently. Coronavirus, obviously a big one. And they did get to it. But 
you know, in the second half of the debate, that could have been a front runner question right there. Things about the president and uh, his interactions with the Justice Department. There was a lot of opportunity for some major top headline news questions, and they just didn't get to it or gave it little play. And they asked questions. And I, I know they always do these personal questions, but what's your biggest misconception and your personal motto? I mean, we've been dealing with these candidates for so long now, besides Mike Bloomberg, Let's get to some issues. Let's have something substantive. And that was a tough one to get over. Let's move on to Bernie Sanders. He is the front runner right now. Joe Biden is polling better in South Carolina. He hopes to have a really good showing there. But Bernie Sanders was fielding all of the attacks throughout the night. You know, you're right to say that South Carolina is Biden territory. He still maintains that it is, though several reports have come out uh, suggesting that perhaps his support in the state is not as strong as he thought. And we also know that Sanders is trying to take away, just sort of blow through the firewall that we've been talking about for months now that Biden does have in the state. And so, yeah, Sanders was definitely fielding a lot of critique, a lot of criticism. He even said it himself at one point in the debate. I'm hearing my name mentioned a lot tonight, (laughs) Uh, but he got the front runner treatment, you know, and that's something that everybody on that stage has experienced at least once now, almost a year into this thing. He was getting a lot of attacks. I don't think anybody really took him down. Bernie Sanders has this kind of air about him, almost like the president. They call him Teflon Don because nothing really sticks to him. And I think Bernie Sanders has a little bit of that where they'll attack him. He'll redirect. And once again, he'll go back into things that he's talked about many times. Bernie Sanders has that consistency with him, at least. But he was getting a lot of heat for things that he said about Cuba and Fidel Castro saying they did some good stuff with regards to education. And really everybody on the stage turned on him on that one said, you know, how could you say that? That's, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. Even Joe Biden, when they were mentioning former President Obama, saying that you guys are on complete opposite sides of this whole thing. And it dovetails right with, you know, this argument that has been standing among moderates for many months and the biggest critique of Sanders, which is if we elect a democratic socialist, not only does that decrease our down ballot, you know, potential and the opportunity to maintain the House and take the Senate, it also creates, you know, a serious, perhaps a disaster scenario for Democrats where you imagine um, the, the spoils of socialism in countries like Cuba or even in Venezuela. And Republicans will be able to point to these regimes and say, this is what Sanders is trying to offer to you. This is what a Sanders administration looks like. See how he cozies up to Fidel Castro. It's almost like it writes itself. Right. And, it, and I think that's why the rest of the field was so quick to jump down his throat about that, because that might be something worth saying. Um, you know, we know that former President Obama had similar sentiments in saying that some of Castro's um, policies actually did help the people of Cuba, but with the stakes being so high in this Democratic primary, just made a lot of people upset that Sanders in this front runner position would would just dig his heels a little bit further into this socialist ideal, I suppose. How do you think Joe Biden did? Obviously, South Carolina is going to be big for him. And then going into Super Tuesday, he needs that momentum. I thought he did okay, but performance was uneven at best, it still seems like. I think he actually had one of the strongest performances on a debate stage that he's had thus far. A lot of the people who I spoke with who are familiar with Biden's style and with his campaign were saying this was the Biden that we've been waiting for for months now. Um, The fact that he was able to strongly articulate himself 
and sort of carry on a train of thought a little bit further, this was the Uncle Joe, if you will, that a number of people, a lot of his supporters, knew that they had seen but weren't seeing it on the debate stage before. And, of course, there's no denying that he was particularly comfortable in South Carolina because that's where he has his strongest base of support. It's where he's well-received always, and it's where he expects to win. And it was sort of peppered now by the Clyburn endorsement that we saw this morning. Um, That's one of the most powerful players, of course, in South Carolina, not to mention the most powerful black man in, in Congress. So you really can't deny that that's going to help him tremendously on Saturday. I've reported before that there were cracks in Biden's firewall and that his support among African-Americans in South Carolina was slipping. And I still stand by that reporting, though now that we have this Clyburn endorsement, I imagine it shored up a few of his, if not several, of his more reluctant black supporters who were just waiting for the moment that we saw last night, which was a stronger performance from him on the debate stage. We've seen this uneven uh, thing for Joe Biden happening for a while now, and and Tom Steyer specifically was doing a lot of advertising in South Carolina. So yeah, so there were some cracks for sure, and Joe Biden needs a big win there to get that momentum going in a Super Tuesday. What do we make of Michael Bloomberg? Uh, Obviously, it wasn't the kind of train wreck that it was the first time out, but I don't know how much better he might have done in this debate. Uh, Still getting a lot of heat from uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders as well. Yeah. And the thing about Bloomberg is there's never any shortage of things to say about about him as a former Republican, as a mayor who was able to change policies and and give himself a a third term as someone who's held women under non-disclosure agreements. Of course, the terms of those were still not totally, you know, we don't know the entire story yet, but it's still something worth asking questions about. Uh, There's stop and frisk. There's his surveillance of uh, Muslim American communities in New York. Like there's a lot of things that just keep tumbling and tumbling out about Bloomberg that just give his opponents plenty of fodder. And it has boosted Warren's numbers tremendously for her to continue to go after him. So the fire that he's taking, I don't think it's going anywhere. I agree that he did have a stronger performance because he was ready for what was coming, I think, more so last night than last week. But as far as like the question of what to make of him, I really don't know. I mean, it's so interesting and borderline bizarre to, to see the way that he spent money and built this thing just totally from the ground up. But no one can quite lay a finger on him right. other than what he tells us in his ad messaging. Yeah, I mean, he's not even a player in South Carolina. He's not on the ballot there. So his big play and, uh, you know, really everybody's big play is on Super Tuesday, which happens just a few days after the South Carolina primary. Everybody's really holding out for there. There's, uh, you know, a ton of states voting. And I'm hoping the landscape changes after that. Then we'll have some clearer front runners. Bernie Sanders wins a lot of delegates there. It's going to be trouble for the other candidates. Joe Biden has this opportunity to gain some momentum. And really what you saw, maybe through all of the arguing and talking over each other, was this revitalized sense of urgency that everybody has leading up to Super Tuesday. And I think that's what, you know, translated to the the chaos and the chaotic energy on the debate stage last night was this idea that all bets are off. It's anyone's game. It's anyone's race to win, truly, depending on how you crunch the numbers. And so no one right now is in the business of trying to be a unity candidate. No No one is trying to make that appeal. And that's how you get, you know, several people just yelling at each other on a debate stage, which is, you know, for better or for worse, why we would have benefited, I think, from some stronger moderation, as you said before.
Yeah, I mean, there's policy attacks, personal attacks. It's all over the place. So we'll have to see how it all plays out after the next few voting contests. Maya King, 2020 fellow at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.